Our text is going to be 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25. It will answer the question, what about abiding in the gospel? John, in, our, in this book, just previously to this verse, reminded the believer of their anointing from the Holy One, the Spirit of Truth, that abides faithful to expose all lies by illuminating the truth, especially the lie that denies Jesus is the Christ. And so the Word of God is like the flashlight. It turns the light on. It, 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 it expels the darkness and it turns on the light to the truth. Um, the only way you can have the Father is to have the Son. If you don't have the Son, you never get the Father. It's just the way it is. And so John answers the question, what about abiding in the gospel, telling the believer to allow the gospel to abide in them. And it's characterized by three things. Let me read here our text. In verse 24 to 26, chapter 2, 1 John. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. And so, it's characterized by three things. First, you have the command to abide in the beginning of verse 24, the command. Second, you have the condition of abiding in the rest of 24. And third, you have the compensation of abiding in verse 25. The command of abiding, listen again, therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Notice the command as a logical conclusion. The Greek text begins with the word you. It's emphatic in contrast to those who deny the son and forfeit the father of verse 22 and 23. He's writing to the, against the Gnostics. Those who were denying the deity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ. The word, therefore, is a word of conclusion, as you know, the sum total of what precedes, meaning consequently, according these things being so, translated, therefore, then and now. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans after 11 chapters of teaching. If you know, if you read Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, I beg you, I beseech you by the mercy of God. You present your body a living sacrifice, holy and accepted God, which is your reasonable service. Be not fashioned in this world system. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Therefore, it's the conclusion of all the chapters before. Now, the word here indicates what follows is to be the conclusion and mark of the true believer. In contrast to the Gnostic Antichrist, in contrast to the false knowledge, in contrast to denying the deity and humanity of Jesus, and in contrast to not having the Father and the Son. So there's a lot of implications when you deny Jesus Christ. Notice the command is an imperative in the Greek here. Let that abide in you. That refers to the gospel, the good news of God to man, that God became man, the good news that God died in place of man, to forgive man, 
the good news that God is coming again to judge man. Very clear. Now the immediate command is in context of the gospel looks back to the preceding verses contrary to the Gnostics. That they had an anointing from the Holy One. As Christians in verse 20. You have received Christ. You have an anointing. The Holy Spirit abides in your body. Your body is a temple of God. When you open the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you understanding. Direction. Conviction. They knew the truth about God. Verse 21. Because you believe the revelation of God. And the Holy Spirit turns the light on. That they had the Son and the Father by acknowledging the Son was the propitiation for man's sins. In verse 22 and 23, he, Jesus is the one who satisfied the demand of the payment. When he said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? It's because God is holy and Jesus became sin and the Father poured his wrath upon him. And Jesus was separated from the Father for the very first time for you and for me. A real payment was made. Notice the command is to let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. The word abide is a key word to the letter, as you know, appearing 22 times. Only five little chapters. 22 times. The word abide means to remain, continue, or dwell, translated as such throughout the New Testament. Never any different. The word is in the present imperative to abide, meaning to give ongoing residence to the gospel in one's life. And this dwelling that is enduring has the idea of being a union. You're one with the gospel. The gospel is one with you. Now notice this principle surely comes from the words of Jesus to his disciples of the vine and the branches in John 15, 1 through 7. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Abide in my words. Notice the picture provides a clear understanding of the essentials of remaining totally and continually dependent in fellowship with God. Danger to your life and mine does not depend on the geographical location, whether it is safe or dangerous. The danger to your life and mine is if I'm not in the will of God. If I'm in the will of God, I can be in the most dangerous place. I'm safe. I'm in his will. So I have to keep that in mind always. The section of the doctrine of Antichrist versus Christ uses the word abide seven times. Here in chapter 2, verse 18 to 28, seven times. found three times in this verse. Abide, abide, abide in these. Notice they had been abiding in the gospel for some time. The phrase in you at the beginning of the sentence emphasizes hearing. And the stress is on the effects of the word preached by the Holy Spirit. They heard it from the beginning in Dictating of some time in the past. You heard the gospel at one time. I heard the gospel. And the Spirit convicted me, gave me light to understand my lostness. And I made a decision. 
At that point, I asked Christ to come in my life. It's been 45 years. Overnight, fast. I remember when we were all first young, and this guy used to teach, and we'd sit under him, and he'd say, you know, I've been a Christian for 25 years. We'd go, wow. But 45 years have flown amazing he had been abiding to the present in the same gospel it's the errors tense they hadn't switched they hadn't altered it they haven't exchanged it for anything else today there's such a corruption of the gospel as much there is a corruption of our laws and our government tweaked command also reinforces the warning about deception by the Gnostics. It's a different gospel. You're going to hear a lot of things as a Christian, and you're going to have to make a decision. Is this biblical? Is it not? If it isn't confirmed by the Scripture, it's not gospel. It's deception. The warning was not fictitious, but a real present possibility. The warning reminded the believer of their free will to be exercised daily. The warning stood in the present reality of those who had been deceived. You got three groups of people in 1 John. The believer who's trying to be deceived. Believers who have been deceived. And the deceivers. Three groups. Very important. If Christians cannot be deceived, why write the letter? Let's just go home. Wow. This is part of the doctrinal test. The light versus the darkness is the test of profession. In the first chapter, verse 5, the chapter 2, verse 11. The father versus the world is the test of desire. In chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. The Christ versus the Antichrist is the test of doctrine. In chapter 2, 18 to 28. These are tests that John puts before us. And they will serve every Christian generation. To make those judgments. To test what is biblical and what is not. John tells us very clearly that Jesus is both the preacher and the message. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, John uses the person of Christ, the word, and the gospel message interchangeably because they are intertwined. You cannot separate Christ from the gospel. Impossible. Marshall, the commentator, put it this way. Listen carefully. I'm quoting It is not enough merely to uh, have heard it and ascended to the message in time past. The message must continue to be present and active in the lives of those who have heard it. They must continually call it to mind and let it affect their lives. A gospel that doesn't affect you is no gospel at all. A gospel that doesn't transform you has no power. The power of the gospel to influence and affect the person is dependent on their free will. 
for it to do what it says it can do, that it will do it. God doesn't force you to obey or myself. God doesn't, didn't force you to come to church tonight. You made a decision. Listen, Jesus said then to those Jews who believe him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple indeed. John 8, 31. How are we doing? There are some Christians who don't pick up their Bible for a week or two, even a month. Really? Hmm. Do you go a week or a month without eating? You do remember to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in between. Jesus said to his disciples, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John fifteen four. Again to his disciples, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch. He, not the branch, he is cast out a person. And who's he talking to? The dirty dozen. If anyone does not, let me make it more personal. If any one of you, 12, do not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather you and throw you into the fire and they're burned. Wow. Context makes a big difference, doesn't it? As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. John 15, 9. One more time, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. John fifteen ten. Because if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And we are to be more like the Son, which will make us like the Father. Oneness. One of Satan's greatest deceptions is to allow individuals to think they're saved because they have uh, responded to an altar call, joined the church, or have basic knowledge about Christ and the gospel, and yet have not abided in that which they heard at the beginning. But they turn from it, and they go back to their old lives, always referring to the past for the proof of their present relationship. If you're always looking to the past, for the confirmation of your present relationship, you have no relationship. You must have a present relationship. You must be walking with God. Then other individuals accept and go along with the doctrines, doctrinal truths of Christ. But after time, it runs and they are called into some new enlightenment. New truth, so-called. And deceived from the gospel. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians uh, uh, that he was concerned lest they be deceived like Eve was deceived by the serpent. Lest you be deceived from the simplicity of Christ. Now, if Christians cannot be deceived, then was Paul exaggerating? Was Paul using reverse psychology? Hmm. The gospel is a common salvation. Once delivered to the saints, it will work for every generation and needs no update or revision. It's the same scripture. 
Some are born again. Others are not. Keep in mind, John is referring to the Gnostics who are deceiving believers. Acts is one with the Gospel of John, or here the epistle. For he always taught the imperativeness to continue in the Gospel. Let me just give you um, some scriptures here in Acts. In, in Acts eleven twenty three, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas... Uh, to verify the work at Antioch, if you remember, telling um, them to abide. He says, when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. The word continues, it implies the same thing, to abide. In Acts thirteen forty three, Paul taught the missionary churches that he had set up. To abide, He says, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Paul exhorted the Gentiles to abide also. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and many, uh, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Abide. And so the command of abiding is not an option. That's why I like to use biblical words in their context. I don't like man-made words. Then we get tricky and we add different meanings to them and, and pretty soon we're preaching ourselves and not the word of God. Notice secondly comes the condition of abiding. The rest of 24 says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. The affirmation of the gospel abiding in the believer is declared as basic. Look at it. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, basic, foundational. Referring to walking in the light of the gospel that he spoke about in chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2. Referring to obeying the word of God, of the gospel. Referring to old and the new commandments that he gave in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. This time, the word beginning is emphatic by placing it before the verb you heard in the Greek in a chiasm. In other words, they crisscross. The first one here, then focus on the other one over here in a poetical way. Now, notice the directive is personal. The phrase, in you, is mentioned in the command and affirmation in this verse. The parallel is found in the anointing of the Holy Spirit in them in verse 27. The word abides is eris, subjunctive, definitely and effectively, says Linsky, the Greek scholar. In other words, 
it works. It will do its work as it abides in me. Stop and think how much God has changed you from the day that you accepted Christ. Stop and think of the things that were impossible for you to resist. And since then, you're able to do it by the grace of God as the word of God is in you. And you call upon the power of his spirit and you trust him and obey him. It's so evident that the people that used to know you have noticed the difference. Some of them like it, some of them don't. Doesn't matter, they've noted it. (laughs) There's a difference. The word if is used consistently in the letter to let the condition and to set that condition of the gospel. If we say in chapter 1, verse 6, that we have fellowship with him, meaning God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Simple. Okay? In chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son cleanses us from all sin. There's the condition. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, no sin nature, that's what it's saying. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The condition if. Chapter 1, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So these tests can be taken by you, by every Christian. 2-1, my little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. In other words, as a practice of life. If, and if anyone sins as a practice of life, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in other words, we don't practice sin the way we used to. We don't live there. When we stumble and fall and miss the mark, we can call upon him to cleanse it, to forgive us, okay? So he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about that we, they write to you that you do not sin as a practice any longer. You don't live there. But because you're not perfect, and if anyone sins, Misses the mark. All of us miss the mark. But it's a lot different the way we used to live. Then we have a lawyer for the defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank God for that. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we don't keep his commandments, then we demonstrate we love ourselves more than him, right? If I'm not faithful to my wife, you think she believed me that I love her? Of course not. Of course not. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You're going to go the direction that draws you. 
Now notice the confirmation of the gospel abiding in the believer is described as a benefit. Listen to his words. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. The relationship of the gospel abiding continuously in the believer brings assurance and is the means of abiding in the fellowship of the Son and the Father. It's a play on words. My abiding nourishes, strengthens me, makes me more like him. It gives me an assurance as well as the benefit of growth, development, and maturity. You also will abide the durative future tense. I've made a decision in the past. I'm in the process in the present. And I'm moving towards the future in Christ. The abiding is due to feeling at home with Jesus. When you and I were in the world and we were doing things we weren't supposed to, we didn't want people to see us. We wanted to hide. Well, the same thing here. Now you feel at home with Jesus because your life has changed. You know he sees everything, he hears everything, he knows everything, so you know you can't hide. So you call upon his name for him to strengthen you, direct you, and to make you more like him. And you live in a faithful, loving relationship with him. It's a big difference. The relationship is inescapable. The relationship is one of ongoing fellowship with the Son and the Father made possible by the Son as declared in the opening of the letter of chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. We have fellowship with him and with one another because of him. Wow. Now this is not the preaching of works for salvation as many Calvinists would tell you that you're declaring. That's nothing to do with works. This is the result of salvation. This is the grace of God being worked out in the life of the believer as they yield in obedience to the will of God. It's a partnership, the divine and the human. It's always spoken about in the scriptures. It's not just one. The Father and the Son are intricately united in the two previous verses in verse 22 and 23 here. The Father gave His Son. <clears throat> the Son reveals the Father. And the Father is forfeited if one denies the Son. The acknowledging of the Son provides fellowship with the Father. We must realize that God's purpose was not just to forgive and save, but to have fellowship with us, resulting in joy, as 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 and 7 says. Go back to the garden in Genesis 2, 7 and 3, 8. God delights to fellowship with man. Not because he needs it, not because he's lonely, not because he has no friends. He doesn't need anything. But he delights in it. Notice John is very clear on this issue. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as 
He, Jesus, walked. And now little children abide in him, and when he appears, chapter 2, verse 28, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You remember your parents going somewhere and left you home and they came home when you were doing something you weren't supposed to? And they walk in? You weren't excited about seeing them home, were you? Okay? But if you were doing what you were supposed to when they came, hey, oh, you guys back, oh, great. It's a different response, right? First John three twenty four says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us the spirit that deals with your heart and mind the minute you get up out of bed when you open that bible when you're driving down the street and stupid thoughts come over your mind or you're getting on the freeway and some guy cuts you off and you want to blur and you're all right lord Every day, every second, you and I have the evidence of the new birth, the power of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The carryover value of allowing the gospel to abide in a person and the relational benefit of a continuous abiding in the Son and Father is like the benefit of the moon that it receives from a relationship to the Son. The Son is a light giver. The moon is a reflector. The moon is only reflecting the rays of the Sun. Without the Sun, that moon is dark. Without the Son of God, Xavier is dark. It's the light of Jesus Christ that I reflect, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't come from within me. My own nature is from Jesus Christ. The fellowship and benefits come and continue to be so by the Word of God. That's why we study the Word of God. I never get tired of reading the Word of God. I never get tired of studying and teaching the Word of God. It's like saying you get tired of eating. It's necessary. Your body compels you to eat. If you don't eat, you die. Paul puts it this way. Let the Word of God, or Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you hear them. No, if you do them. John 13.17. You're a parent. You tell your son or daughter to do something. If they don't do what you told them, are they happy? Neither are you. If they do, if they obey, they're happy and so are you. It's real simple. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. 
Jesus said in John 15, 7. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Are you convinced of that? Everything that God has done in this ministry since 1980, he's done it by and through people who are abiding in Christ. Those that don't abide, God does, can do very little through them. But he's the one that does it all. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrines of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Second John. Paul is completely one with John on abiding. Listen to some of the scriptures. Paul says uh, in Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. He's talking to the Jews. Severity, but towards you, goodness, the Gentiles. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. What do you do with that? Wow. Romans eleven twenty three, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Talking about the Jew, the remnant. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. How can anybody read? If this is the only verse I had, I wouldn't need any other one. Listen again. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, if there is no chance to not abide or to not or to be moved, then 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 why 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 say this? First Timothy four sixteen, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you. Second Timothy three thirteen and fourteen says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, who are they going to deceive? The sinner who's deceived? You deceive someone who's not deceived. Someone who has come to the gospel. You can't deceive sinners. They're deceived. You and I were deceived. The contrast is clear. Deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul is talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, 2 Timothy three thirteen and 14. The attack was on in Ephesus. 1 John five thirteen says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
1 John 5.13. The condition of abiding is absolute. There's no argument about it. Third and last notice in verse 25. You have the compensation of abiding. Listen to the words. And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. The promise is based on meeting the condition of the gospel abiding in the believer. The word promise means the announcement of a message as well as the act of saying you will do, give, or perform what is declared as that condition is met. It is used for the promise of the Father to send the Holy Spirit called the promise of the Father in Luke 24 49. It is used in Hebrews. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Hebrews 4.1. This is the only time the word appears in John's writing. Only this time. John wrote his gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. This is the only time. The phrase, this is, is a continuous present. Ongoing. Notice promises are sometimes conditional, at other times they are unconditional, so the context is very important. The conditional one has a premise indicated by the word if, and then what that entails is stated. For example, if a person repents from their sins, they shall be saved. The condition to be met is repentance. All right? The unconditional one has no premise. For example, someone writes on a sign, free oranges. No one has to meet any condition nor can be denied. It says free oranges. Right? So the if will have a condition, and if it doesn't, it's not present, there's no condition at all. The one making the promise, take note, is God. The personal pronoun, he, is emphatic. Is this the son being identified? Or is it the father being referred to? I think Jesus is the focus. But the Father cannot be excluded. They are one. The promise is only as good as the one that makes it, right? We all have friends or relatives that they're type of people that are always promising and saying they're going to do something. But after um, years, we don't even pay attention. We know it's just another story, right? And then we have friends and relatives that they're people of their word. And when they say something, even though it might be incredulous, we believe them because of their character. This is God speaking. 
The promise is only as good as the one that makes it. <clears throat> Some people are persons of character, and you know you can trust and believe what they say and promise. They will keep their word. Others are more like weather vanes. They're so inconsistent and untrustworthy, they will always yield in the direction of the wind, what's ever favorable for them. God cannot lie, the Bible tells us. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? They're all rhetorical questions. Yes, yes, yes. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandments of God our Savior. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. God who cannot lie. Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Let God be true and every man a liar. God cannot lie. There are certain things God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot accept sin. He's holy. Impossible. The promise is that of eternal life. Notice that. It's directed to us. The pronoun identifies the believer. The believer is the one who has met the condition of the gospel abiding in him. The believer has been enjoying ongoing fellowship with the son. And the Father, the promise of eternal life is twofold notice. The primary use and meaning of the phrase is quality of life, a God-like life. Sadly, too often when believers hear eternal life, they first of all think of a long life that never ends. The way the word is used throughout the New Testament, as well as the Old, the primary definition is, God-like life. It's his life through you. You're living a life that you cannot live on that level on your own sinful nature. So first it means God-like life. Second of all, it will mean life that never ends. Second Peter 1, 3 through 5 through 4 says, Being able to live out life in the new divine nature with great and precious promises. The new divine nature has given us. Being able to deny self, the works of the flesh, the old sin nature, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 19-25. Some of you have gone through difficult things. Some of you have been uh, betrayed. Some of you, even um, with family, friends, and, and maybe other things have happened, and maybe unforgiveness has been really hard, and you've been able to do what God has like strengthening you to do that you've never been able to do on your own. And you know it. And so do other people. It's the divine work. A God-like life. And of course, secondly, as I said, life that never ends. It begins the instant a person 
is born again. It continues on forever after one's death in an astrological sense because the minute you give your last breath or I give it, this body just drops to the ground. My spirit goes before the Lord. They put this thing in the ground and when the Lord comes back, he'll raise it up and give me my glorified body. How's he going to work all that? I don't know and I don't really care. It's not going to be difficult for him. Whether jaws eat you, whether you're burned in a fire, whether they intern you, whether whatever, it doesn't matter. Jesus declared, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John seventeen three. You know, John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, that, that's, that, Jesus could have never prayed that. That was a model prayer. Because you're asking forgiveness of sins, Jesus had no sin. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, as he speaks to the Father. Glorify me with the glory which I had before the world was, because he abdicated the throne, right? Emptied himself of his glory. And God was just going to judge him and then raise him from the dead. And he was going to return to the right hand of the Father. That's the Lord's Prayer in John 17. Jesus said, you do search the scriptures to the Jews, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they would testify of me. John 5, 39. This was one of the reasons John wrote his epistle, stating eternal life directly six times. Listen. 1 John 1, 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested in us. 1 John 2.25 And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. 1 John 3.15 Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and, who, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wow. 1 John 5.11 and this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in the Son or His Son. Once again in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. One last one, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Wow. I don't know when you went to school, but um, maybe some of you remember Ponce de Leon, the Spanish navigator and explorer, the search high and low for the fountain of youth in the new world that he came to. But he never found it because it's only found in Jesus Christ. Botox, implants, Man, people are going to do all kinds of stuff. You're still going to rot. You're going to be the look, best looking corpse at Rose Hills. 
Eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. Paul often um, mentions this critical balance of divine enablement and human obedience without ever teaching salvation by works. Let me give you some scriptures. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The divine and the human are joined together. No contradiction. Galatians 6, 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows of the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. First Timothy 1.16 says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Our life's an example. First Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The people that you have demonstrated the life of Christ, eternal life to your parents, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your wife, to your husband, to your co-workers, to your sons, to your daughters. All the years that you've been walking with God. First Timothy 6, 18 and 19 said, Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation from the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Titus 3, 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's going to be so incredible if the Lord tarries and when I take my last breath and I'm instantly present before the Lord. Or if we're all alive and he raptures us. What a ride that's going to be. It'll put Magic Mountain like a nothing. The author to the Hebrews taught the doctrine of abiding. Probably Paul, I believe, is the author. Let me give you some of those. In um, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, it says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to those things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect the great of salvation? which is at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both 
with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The great accountability we have, what we have received, the personal relationship, the gifts, the direction, the illumination. Hebrews three fourteen through 15, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about the Old Testament. Hebrews 6, 4 through 7. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good words of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance as they crucify again to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Pretty clear to me. Hebrews 10, 26-31 says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, of fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, anyone who has rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Listen carefully. From the lesser to the greater. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge, listen, his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who are Calvinists teach the whole book of Hebrews to non-believers. They don't believe it's written to believers. Are you kidding me? From the beginning to the end, he talks about us, we. Wow. To the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus warns if they do not repent of their sins they have become ensnared in, they will be judged by him. Chapter 2 and 3. We just went through the seven churches in our study on Wednesday morning. We're going through the book of Revelation right now. Only two churches have no condemnation. Smyrna, the suffering church, and Philadelphia, the missionary church. A person can only suffer and use, be used as a faithful believer by allowing the gospel to abide in him, resulting in abiding in the Son and the Father. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 13 says. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude, verse 20 and 21. Wow. The compensation of abiding is eternal life, ladies and gentlemen. And so John has answered the question. What about abiding in the gospel? By telling the believer to allow the gospel to abide in them, characterized by these three things. The command of abiding. It is not an option. 
the condition of abiding, it is absolute. The compensation of abiding, it is eternal life. Wow. Love the word of God. You can't touch it. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and goodness. We love you. Thank you for tonight, and thank you for your grace and your love towards us and your promises that are never failing, Lord. We pray for those that are present, those that are over the Internet and out there in the radio world, Lord, that you would deal with their hearts. As you are hearing the gospel, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has allowed you to hear the gospel that you might repent from your sins, that you might call upon his name, be forgiven, and that he may impart to you eternal life. Believing that Jesus became sin for you, died in your place, bore the wrath of the Father in your place, tasted death for every person, and rose from the dead and sits at the right of the Father. If you believe that, you can call upon him and be saved. This is a simple prayer of repentance right now. Right where you sit or wherever you're at, you can say this, he's going to save you right now by forgiving you your sins. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.